back down and shut your trap. It's time for keeping it sports with them three. Are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I'll need some beer. Are you ready? You have to ask me nicely. Come on now, don't be bashful. Are you ready? place for the best sports talk and news surrounding each league. I can prove it with my usual flawless logic. Hey man, this time I'm do it my way. Uh, what's your name again? And now, here's your host, M3, Mike Rosansky. Good afternoon, everyone. How's it going out there? Coming to you from Chair Hill, New Jersey, it's time for Keeping Sports with M3, powered by the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. How's it going, everyone? Hope everything's going well for you here on this Monday, the 8th day of August. I can feel it in the air, people. Football's coming right around the corner. Oh, what? A little less than a month away now from uh, the 2022-2023 season for the National Football League uh, getting started. Uh, now, before then, baseball will still, in all likelihood, consume a lot of uh, my time and attention here, especially with the fact that we sit here on the second Monday in August, and both of our uh, baseball teams here in the tri-state area, the Yankees and the Mets, sit here with exact identical records at 70 and 39, both in first place in the division, both with uh, top records in the, their given leagues, would both have first-round buys if the postseason began today. But you sit here on this Monday afternoon, or you know, in all likelihood Tuesday if you're listening to this now, and the two fan bases are in completely different mindsets and completely different moods on the this afternoon with how we got to this point with how we got to these uh records now with the yankees they got off to a dominant start they got in off to a outstanding uh start where they were having all these comeback victories all these walk-off wins you had dominance from their starting rotation early on and weren't dealing with any of, of the injury bug that had plagued them the last uh, couple of years. While the Mets, it was just a slow, steady, consistent um, build up to this point. Hadn't, hadn't been blowing anybody away offensively. In fact, the, the biggest complaint um, by a lot of Mets fans was that they were still lacking a bat or two considering they weren't getting a lot out of third base, weren't getting great production power-wise in corner outfield spots. The catching position had been hit or miss, all while Pete Alonso was having this outstanding year. And you're doing this with a rotation that, had Max Scherzer missing two months due to oblique problems. Jacob DeGrom up until last week not pitching at all for this team. 
but they kept things afloat no matter the issue, no matter how strong the Braves had come on since the start of June, and sit here on this Monday afternoon with a six and a half game lead in the National League East and the second best record in the National League. And this is all stemming from a week in which you know, last Tuesday was the baseball trade deadline. And personally, I did not think the Mets did enough at the deadline. I thought that they should have added an everyday bat to this team. They added a lot of situational type players with the likes of Tyler Naquin, Darren Ruff, uh, Daniel Vogelback, guys that are better off in platoons rather than everyday players. Well, so far, you know, especially in the case of Vogelback and Naquin, they've come back and and done the job for you. You had Vogelback with a big grand slam against the Nationals that put things away last Wednesday. Even had a big home run over the weekend during this uh, rare five-game series against uh, the Atlanta Braves. Tyler Nick, when his first game in City Field as a Met, has two home runs, helping the Mets uh, to uh, the victory uh, that night. I thought that the Mets needed to go out and get the everyday bat, get more help in the bullpen than just trading for uh, Michael Givens of the Cubs, who hasn't really panned out for them uh, so far. But maybe the big addition wasn't really necessary when it comes to this you know, happy-go-lucky um, bunch of guys that, you know, have some personality to them, don't take a lot of things too seriously, and are just concentrating on going out there, having fun, playing, uh, winning baseball, not you know, having analytics or statistics shoved down their throat each and every single moment of the day. And they were able to battle the two things that were going against them, injuries to uh, their starting rotation and the, the hot streak that the Braves have gotten on and have seemingly overcome that. I mean, you look at it, two starts by Jacob deGrom so far, and you could see that they're slowly building him up um, with incremental increases in his pitch count, not letting him pitch into the seventh or eighth inning as he probably normally would in these starts just to protect him for the stretch run here and protect him as he's making his first starts for the Mets in 13 months. No, his come, his return, uh, the fact that the rotation each and every single night, with the exception of Taiwan Walker uh, on Friday, is giving you a representable quality start each and every single night, has downplayed some of the concerns, some of the issues you maybe had with the Mets bullpen leading up to Edwin Diaz, who... No, who would have thought that it would become the show that it's been when Edwin Diaz comes into games now? Now you're seeing the fans almost in celebration mode, in happy mode, rather than you know a year ago at this time. I don't think there was a Met fan 
alive that wanted Edwin Diaz pitching for them. Hell, the, not even wanting him to pitch the ninth, wanting him uh, pitching for this team in general. But something finally in, what is this, his third or fourth year here, finally a light switch flipped on for Diaz, and he's been the guy that you would have expected him to be when you got him from the Mariners all those years ago. So the Mets, they've been on a fun run here. They've been a fun watch. And concluding with, uh, or continuing, should I say, with this past weekend where they took care of business against the Atlanta Braves. Each night, it was a different story. Whether it was Naquin's heroics on Thursday, match up with uh, Diaz in the two-inning save there, which I don't even think that was the original plan. I think Buck's plan was, all right, have Diaz pitch the eighth since it's the heart of the order coming up here, and I'll do whatever's necessary in the ninth. But Diaz had such a low pitch count that he was able to go back out there for two innings. It was a lost day on Friday with Walker's performance, but then you got the the sweep of the doubleheader on Saturday with a very surprising strong performance by uh, David Peterson, followed up by uh, Scherzer's dominance in the nightcap. And then the Grom had you started thinking weird, funny things yesterday afternoon when he's perfect through five innings. And I think we knew with you know how they were limiting his pitch count, he probably wasn't going to go the whole way. But you know, 12 strikeouts in less than six innings and only doing it on 76 pitches. I, the Mets are finding new ways each day to win these games. And that's different than it was in the past. They were finding ways to lose games in the past. And now they set themselves up here of getting back to a six-and-a-half game lead over the Braves with a, a week ahead here going up against the Reds and the the Phillies. Phillies still um, in the playoff race, uh, surprisingly. Before they will see the Braves again for a four-game set in Atlanta. So just... Got to keep the motor running here. Got to keep it business as usual because the Braves will still have potential chances to catch them in this division if they let their foot off the brakes. And I don't know whether you want to say it's let their foot off the brakes or let put their foot on the brakes or let their foot off the gas, whatever the term you want to uh, use here is. But it's been... A very lackluster, disappointing, you know, mind-scrambling last 30 games for the New York Yankees. Because, you know, 30, 30 games ago, you would not have thought we'd be sitting here a second week of August with the Mets and Yankees having the same record. But the Yankees have gotten into the funk where they seemingly can't get out of it. And the... The weirdest part about it is, and sometimes it shows how statistics can lie to you compared to what the human eye is telling you. You, know, you look at the last 30 games. The Yankees are 12 and 18, yet still have a run differential of plus 38 in uh, that time. And it makes no sense. How could a team that's six games over, six games under 500 in a 30-game stretch have that great of a run differential 
over that time period. And uh, you know, some of it is due to injuries. You know, some of it is due to performance coming back down to earth. Whether it was, you know, that there was that stretch where their rotation was pitching to a an ERA of just around two for about a month there. And you thought to yourself, is this the real Yankee rotation or is or are we being deceived here? Well, they came back down to earth. Tyon has been a mess for a month. You know, there was that stretch for about six starts. There were Cortez uh, was looking exhausted, but he's starting to pitch well again. You have the injury to Severino, and then there's Garrett Cole, who gives up six runs in the first inning to the Mariners last week. Gives up three home runs in the very first inning. Hell, I'm sitting at work, and I look at the the box score on ESPN.com. I thought my eyes were deceiving me when I saw him give up six home run, six runs and three homers to the Seattle Mariners. I'm like, Cole, are you freaking kidding me? And what was most embarrassing and shameful about it is on the other side, they're getting dominated by the pitcher that they wanted to get at the trade deadline in Luis Castillo. I look at what the Yankees did at the trade deadline, bringing in an F and Ross from the, the Cubs, making the trade with the A's to get Montas and Trevino. And I'm thinking, all right, on paper, they, they add two arms to the bullpen, get another starter in the rotation. But then five minutes before the deadline, they decide to drink some kind of stupid potion. I don't know, have an edible or something. And for some reason, trade Jordan Montgomery to the Cardinals for Harrison Bader. Harrison Bader, who's, well, he's a really good defensive center fielder, adds some speed. He's on the IL right now with uh, plantar fasciitis. And we're not even sure if he's going to be able to play again this season. I'm not going to sit here and try and tell you Montgomery's some world beater, that he's some front of the rotation pitcher, that he's some ace. But it's better than sending Domingo Herman out there once every five days. Montgomery was a quality pitcher who his win-loss record didn't indicify how well he had pitched for this team this year because the Yankees seemingly don't score when he pitches. Hell, they kept that trend up on Friday night when he, uh, or Saturday night, excuse me, when he pitched for the Cardinals. And the Yankees couldn't score against uh, the Cardinals' uh, pitching staff. Lost a one nothing game uh, to Montgomery, and he didn't even uh, last past the fifth inning due to cramping. I mean, you look at this team right now, and there's clearly something amiss. Whether it's, you know, the law of averages are catching up to them, whether it's you know, the, the fact that in the bottom of the order, you're not getting much punch right now, especially, you know, they're forced to play Matt Carpenter every day. And it feels like as an everyday player, he's starting to come back down to earth compared to the hot start he got off to. Uh, I don't remember the last time Aaron Hicks got a hit. He's 0 for, what, 0 for 32, something uh, like that. Now, you... you have IKF, who still does not have a home run yet uh, this year. 
these teams are now pitching around Aaron Judge and forcing other guys uh, to beat them as they should, considering the historic season that uh, he's having. And now, as I said, this lineup is missing some clear punch without Stanton, with Rizzo missing this weekend due uh, to uh, back spasms. I mean, there are real problems with the, this team right now, both offensively and with the pitching staff. You you look at it in the first 79 games of the season, they had an ERA just under three. Right now, they for the last 30 games, they've pitched to an ERA of about four and a half. And while they're still you know scoring a, a decent amount of runs a game, they're not consistent hitting consistently each and every single night. So, and then add on top of that, the bullpen has you know, been a mess this season. You lost King and Green to injuries. Uh, Chapman was a mess there for a while, though. He's started to pitch okay recently. Lewisica uh, was on the DL uh, for two months and has been okay since he came back. And then what was your safety net in Clay Holmes? His first 35 appearances was off to a video game-like start. I had only blown one save in 15 opportunities. And then you look at his, his last 11 appearances. He's given up nine runs, blown three saves. I think a lot of the problem with Holmes recently is you look at his first... 36 uh, and two-thirds innings pitched this year, he had only walked five batters. In his last 10 innings pitched, he's walked nine. So the, the walks are starting to come back to bite him. And they need to get him uh, back in uh, back into form. I mean, he's not going to pitch to the video game level he was in the first half of the season. I mean, that that's levels that not even the great Mariano Rivera uh, ever pitched that. But they've got to get him back to being the guy that where you hand him the ball in the ninth inning and you feel like, oh, the game's over, the, that the game is in a secure place. Because if he's going to uh, all of a sudden turn back into a pumpkin, you look at this bullpen, it doesn't inspire a lot of confidence right now with the people that they lost. And especially with the moves that they made in the last week, it's forced them to send Marinaccio to the minors, who unfortunately he was the only guy out there that had minor league options so that they could fit everybody on the team. I mean, it's just really a, a mess what you're looking at with the Yankees uh, right now. And the only saving grace that they've had is the fact that they still have a sizable lead in this division. You know, the, the opportunity was there for Toronto to gain some serious ground on them. But they're still sitting here at nine and a half games behind the Yankees. But a week and a half from now, get a four-game set against the Yankees where they'll get to take their uh, best shot at them. So as I sit here on the, this Monday afternoon, there's no positive spin to give to it right now. The Yankees are a mess. They need to get their heads out of their rear ends and start playing winning consistent baseball again, while the Mets seem to be having the time of their lives and 
No, if I had told you a month ago that they were going to have the same record on August 8th, you would have thought I was insane. But unfortunately, insanity is happening. All right, got plenty left to get to over the next no, 40 minutes or so here. Give you some thoughts on some of the big moves that went down at the trade deadline. As well as I watched parts 5 and 6 of ESPN's documentary, The Captain. Give you some thoughts on that. And mixing a little bit of football near the end as well. So uh, plenty left to uh, get to for the next about 40 minutes or so here. Uh, so please. Sit back, relax, help put your feet up if you feel like it, and continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping Sports with M3 on this Monday afternoon here in Sherry Hill, New Jersey. You know, Tuesday for me went from being a joyous day, a fun day, with the baseball trade deadline, something I always look forward to because you have a lot of things happening across the sport. Every Everybody seemingly making a move, unless Colorado Rockies, who seemingly don't understand that you are allowed to sell off pieces at the trip deadline, but I digress there. It quickly went from a joyous, kind of fun day, speculating about what uh, could be going on, to closing out the day sad, disappointed. And second time uh, uh, last week, I felt that way. You know, It was a week ago Sunday in which... Uh, we lost NBA great, uh, the legendary Bill Russell. Well, we lost another all-time great. And all-time great might not be doing it enough justice. We lost the GOAT when it comes to play-by-play announcing uh, late last Tuesday when legendary Dodgers announcer Vin Scully passed away at the age of 94. And such a remarkable life, such a remarkable career, beginning when he was a student at Fordham back in the 40s, 
to when he would eventually become the man for 67 years, the voice of Dodgers baseball. Longest tenure that any announcer had with one given sports franchise for 67 years calling uh, Dodgers games. You know, beginning uh, every broadcast with uh, that oh so infamous sound of it's time for Dodgers baseball. And you know, I, th- I thought that was a very fitting way for the Dodgers players and the fans to pay tribute to him in their first home game since his passing on Friday night by the entire stadium yelling that out in unison there. And you look at this uh, this man's career, not you now we think and talk about him as the voice of the Dodgers, which he was, which carried across many, many generations. I mean, uh, thinking about his career spanning from 1950 through 2016. But he also called NFL games on CBS, including you know, the, his probably his most famous call uh, in NFL games was his final game, the 1981-1982 NFC Championship game between the 49ers and the Cowboys with uh, Dwight Clark's catch at the end. He, he would then move on uh, to uh, calling uh, games on NBC, including calling three World Series uh, from 84 through uh, 88. The, the most famous ones, uh, you could argue between them, were 86 and 88, with 86 and one of his great calls of his career uh, the, with uh, the... Uh, Bill Buckner play uh, that Mookie Betts um, slowly hit up the first baseline and went through Buckner's legs to win the game for the Mets and continue that World Series. Or in 88, uh, the World Series between uh, the Giants and the the A's that had to be delayed halfway through it due to an earthquake. But he just had, had so many infamous calls over the course of his long illustrious careers to me the 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 ones i think of uh the most when it comes to uh uh vin are him calling hank aaron's um all-time home run record uh passing babe ruth and uh the the part that really gives me chills is when he says what a miraculous moment for baseball a black man getting a standing ovation in the deep south for breaking uh, a record of an all-time baseball idol and think about that that's during the a time we're at the height of racism still in this country and especially down in in the deep south and he's getting um celebrated uh, for breaking a long um, heralded record by a a white man who was considered the greatest baseball player of all time. Also called Don Larson's perfect game in the 56 World Series. 
talked about the Buckner play in 86, but also in in 88, his call, uh, one of his memorable calls, uh, game one of the 88 uh, World Series when Kirk Gibson came limping up to home plate and hits the walk-off home run off of Eckersley, who was you know, damn near unhittable at that time, it finishes uh, that broadcast with saying, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible happens. And yet, you know, what I loved about Vince Scully, and in the limited time I got to hear him, because being here on the East Coast, you don't get to he- hear him that often, unless you have the Major League Baseball package, or you're watching games on the MLB Network, and Trust me, I would stay up late at night uh, back in uh, the early part of the 2010s uh, once the MLB network started and I saw a Dodgers game was being broadcasted on there just to hear this man call these games. He never made the games about himself. He, Unlike a lot of broadcasters these days, didn't have a cute catchphrase, didn't have, you know, you know, see ya, or put it in the books, or, um, you know, ball game over, any anything like that. Let the game tell the story. Hell, he knew the moments when to drop back and just let the game speak for itself. So, you know, we lost an icon. We lost an all-time great. I don't think it's hyperbole to say this. If you're doing a Mount Rushmore of play-by-play announcing in um, baseball or in just sports in general, you start with Vin Scully and then you fill in the blank the other three spots with whoever you damn or choose to put it there. But we lost an icon. We lost an all-time great. Lived to 94, a great, long um, life. But we lost someone that I know Dodger fans cherish, Dodger fans loved. And the sport was made better because he was part of it. And we will never forget his impact on not just baseball, but broadcasting sports in general. So God bless you and rest in peace, Vince Scully. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see at a radio station, if you 
also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping Sports with M3. Now, as I said, it was a somber week last week for Dodger fans and baseball fans everywhere with the, the passing of Vince Scully. And who knows, maybe this provides an extra little boost, an extra little piece of momentum going down the stretch here for the Los Angeles Dodgers as uh, they sit here today with the best record in baseball at 75 and 33, uh, winners of eight straight, winning 28 of their last 33 games. And what's remarkable about this is the fact that they've done this at a time where they're without Kershaw and Bueller, and Max Muncy and uh, uh, Cody Bellinger have done nothing. They're the only guys in that lineup that aren't hitting. You're getting you know, great seasons uh, like you would expect out of uh, both Freeman and Betts. Now, Justin Turner has been uh, pretty good as well as uh, Trey Turner. But these two guys have been uh, complete nothings, complete wastes in that lineup. So maybe this sad unfortunate moment in losing Vin Scully is uh, what continues uh, to uh, bring this team together on uh, route to possibly winning a second title in the last three years you know one thing I forgot to mention about Vin Scully is that he called Dodger games for so long what people don't realize is he was a San Francisco Giant fan that's a team he grew up uh, rooting for, grew, uh, rooting with, and what was interesting about him is, you know, his final game as a broadcaster was calling Giants Dodgers in uh, uh, San Francisco in 2016, and his first game, the first Dodger home game after his passing, is is Dodgers versus Giants in Dodger Stadium, so. Weirdly, a little bit of uh, symmetry there. Now, his, his Dodgers did not make any big splash moves at the baseball trade deadline. Neither did the Giants. The Giants, who I talked about last week, were kind of in that middle grounds. There were, they're within arm's reach of a wild card spot, but you didn't have the feel watching them of a team that was truly going to make a run. You thought maybe they'd uh, sell off some pieces such as uh, Carlos Rodon, but they pretty much stayed packed there. And the Dodgers, the only move they made was getting Joey Gallo, who even though he has been putrid this season, including going 2-for-15 since joining the Dodgers, 
they haven't lost a game since they they uh, brought him in. But uh, another one of their uh, division rivals was pretty active and made the biggest splash moves of this deadline. And sometimes this is the thing that you know sucks about doing a podcast and you know while being live on social media, you know not being able to add things in afterwards or after the fact because about five minutes after I finished recording last week's podcast, the Padres make the first big splash move of this trade deadline by trading uh, two prospects, right-hander uh, Nelson Lamette and their closer, Taylor Rogers to the Milwaukee Brewers for Josh Hader. Josh Hader, who it feels like since the moment he came to the big leagues has been rumored about getting traded. Teams be, being long interested in what many consider the best closer in baseball. Now, he's had his struggles over the last month after getting off to a phenomenal start He's had an ERA of 20 in his uh, last five innings pitch, giving up uh, 10 runs, including four home runs over uh, that time span. But when right, this is one of, if not the best closer in the sport. And I don't understand why the Brewers are making this move. I mean, either they really love the prospects they're getting back here, or, you know, that uh, the they were worried about the financial commitment for him next year where he could be making $15 million through arbitration. But why would you trade your all-world all-star closer at a time when you have the best record in your division, when you're going to be in the playoffs and with the rotation you have put together, you don't have a chance at making some noise, putting a scare potentially into either the Dodgers or the Mets in the second round. Now, and in the case of the Padres, why'd you put Taylor Rogers in, in the, this deal? You know, why wouldn't you just, you know, we've seen AJ Preller is ready and willing to give up prospects at any at all time. Why wouldn't you just keep Rogers, make him your setup man and have him setting up Josh Hader uh, and strengthen a, a uh, what was already a quality bullpen by adding the best closer in the sport rather than doing this, I say lateral move just because you're trading your closer for somebody else's closer. Maybe it's just the Brewers weren't willing to do a deal without getting a, a closer in return, but it was kind of a, a weird uh, uh, deal on uh, both fronts. Now, the Padres less than 24 hours later would end up making the big splash that everybody had been waiting for. The move that, quite frankly, I did not think was going to happen before this deadline. But they wound up being the winners of the Juan Soto uh, sweepstakes. Getting him along with Josh Bell, who's having a nice year, for... Five prospects, including the youngster uh, Mackenzie Gore, who had been out with some injuries. 
And originally, it was supposed to be Eric Hosmer in this deal. But instead, Luke Voigt got put in the deal once Eric Hosmer uh, decided to use his no-trade clause. So the, the Nationals had to get uh, another player uh, back in the deal. And I can only imagine what Voigt was thinking, thinking he's going from playing with um, Manny Machado, Juan Soto, and hopefully eventually Fernando Tatis Jr. to now playing on a team that is playing out the string and is in complete and utter rebuild mode. But AJ Preller, as as I said, is showing that he has no emotional attachments to any player that he he drafts or develops because you look at the. San Diego Padres, look at their starting lineup, look at their starting rotation. All of those guys were acquired via trades. You you look at the rotation. Musgrove got him from the Pirates. Darvish got him from the Cubs. Uh, they got uh, Clevenger from the Indians, got Blake Snell from the Tampa Rays. That lineup is littered with guys that were all acquired via trade. Hell, they didn't even draft or sign as an international free agent. Tatis, Tatis they got in what has turned out to be one of the dumb trades of all time when they were able to get him in the package that sent James Shields to Chicago. And the the White Sox are still kicking themselves over making that deal because Shields was a bum for them. So... Now, this team, now it shows how great that Preller is at drafting and developing players. The fact that as soon as these guys get at or ready to be um, major league type players, he has them good enough that other teams are interested in trading their top of the line, all-star level, all-star caliber players to get them. So it's no, it's a remarkable job that he has done there in continuously turning over this roster. If oh, if this isn't working, I'll I'll trade prospects and get the, this guy, and we'll see if eventually it turns into something for them and winning big in winning the World Series. I mean, all the pieces are there. They're not going to. I don't think they're going to be able to catch the Dodgers, especially after the Dodgers swept them this weekend. But in all likelihood, they're going to be in the postseason. They're going to be a playoff uh, team. So, you know, they've got a, a uh, on paper, a strong rotation with, led by Musgrove and Darvish. Just got probably the best closer in the sport in uh, uh, Hayter. And now that lineup... One through nine, it's as good as any lineup in Major League Baseball. And they're probably looking around that room right now and saying, hey, we get Tatis back. If he finally gets back on the field, why not us? Why can't we be the team that comes out of the National League? Now, I do worry with them, uh, sometimes them you know, having too many chefs in the kitchen. But let's see how this thing plays out once they get their full uh, – you know, assessment of uh, guys back on that team. 
You know, it wasn't an entirely bad weekend for the Braves. I, they did lose four games in the standings uh, to the Mets, losing uh, four out of five in that series. But they were able to uh, help out a, a couple of things here. One, help out their rotation by uh, getting uh, Jake Odorizzi at a time that, you know, Ian Anderson has struggled and just got sent to the minors this morning. And due to their uh, bullpen depth, uh, they were able to uh, move Will Smith, who weirdly, it's weird how things work out. Remember, less than a year ago, Will Smith closed out the World Series for the Braves against the Houston Astros. Now they're trading him to the Astros to get uh, Odorizzi and um, a lot of that is thanks to the depth they have in their bullpen, but also they needed a starter. They needed someone in that rotation to eat up innings, especially with uh, you not knowing uh, how what kind of limits some of their uh, young starters are um, going to have and uh, with uh, how Ian a- Anderson has just been sent to the minors, add in the fact that you don't know if you're getting Mike Sorotka back uh, this year to pitch for them for the first time in a couple of years. So they needed uh, some rotation depth there. But they um, also were able to lock down another member of their core to a long-term extension, giving Austin Riley, 10 years for $212 million. And the first two years of this kid's career did not go very well. Now, he he looked like he was going to be a bust of a prospect, but he's turned things around and has turned himself into a star-caliber player there for them. And remember, he's still only 25 years old and is getting better each of the last two years. Finally made the All-Star team uh, this year. So now they've got him, Acuna. Uh, they've got Olsen. Uh, I think they've got Swanson as well. All of these guys that are part of their uh, their core locked up for the long term to be here throughout their primes. And the, you know, I talk about them making a trade with uh, the Astros. The Astros made a a flurry of moves uh, last week, not just getting Will Smith for to lengthen things in their bullpen, but got uh, Christian Vasquez uh, behind the, the plate, uh, giving them a little more uh, punch behind the plate, and swung a three-team deal to get a guy that I know a lot of Met fans were hoping uh, would be uh, under their uh, trade deadline Christmas tree, getting Trey Mancini from the Baltimore Orioles. And the Astros... In the last 30 games, have gone 20 and 13. And in that time frame, with the struggles of the Yankees, have been able to close the gap as, from being seven games behind the Yankees for best record in the American League to now only being a half game behind the Yankees for best record in the American League. And remember, if they finish tied, the Astros have the tiebreaker going 5-2 and two against the Yankees this uh, season. But with a couple of the moves that they uh, made, you, know, you also have to look at the other side of things here. Uh, the, I'm sure 
with the trade of Trey Mancini, it was heartbreaking for some Oriole fans because he was their guy. He came up through their system. And, you know, it comes at a time where the Orioles are playing good baseball. They've won five of their last six games. They're still somewhat seemingly alive in the race for the third um, wildcard spot in the American League. But they trade Mancini and trade uh, their all-star closer, Jorge Lopez, uh, to the Twins. They'll be a, a team interesting to watch over the next couple of weeks to see if these moves start to uh, take a little bit of the air out of the balloon for the Orioles, or they continue this us-against-the-world mentality and continue to surprise everyone with the fact that we're sitting here in August and we're talking about the Baltimore Orioles being a few games over 500. But um, was more confusing than what the Orioles did at the deadline. I don't understand what the Boston Red Sox were doing. And the Boston Red Sox, who seemingly cannot get out of their own way, are two games under 500, fifth place in the American League East. They treated the the deadline as almost being both buyers and sellers because they traded Vasquez uh, to the Astros. They trade Jake Diekman to the White Sox to get Vasquez's replacement at catcher in, in Reese McGuire. But then they do buyer moves in getting Tommy Pham from the Reds and Eric Hosmer from the Padres. And has anyone watched the Red Sox this year? The Red Sox have never gotten going this year. They've been a mess the entire year. Outside of... Um, Bogarts, Martinez, and Devers are getting seemingly nothing offensively from the rest of the crew. Uh, outside of Trevor Story, who had started to come on in the last two months, but he's now out till who knows when with a hairline fracture in his right wrist. They're without Chris Sale, possibly for the rest of the season after uh, the finger injury he suffered last month. And I, I don't... I don't understand what the Red Sox game plan was going into the deadline. And the worst position that you can be, not just in baseball, but in any sport, is in the middle. You either want to be very good, be aggressive, and be a buyer, or sell off and build for another day. Being in between, where does that get you? I mean, you taking on the rest of Eric Hosmer's contract, for, for what? For some failed hope at possibly being the third wildcard team. Even if somehow, some miraculous way, Chris Sale came back by, say, September 1st and was able to be a starting pitcher for them. They're not, they're not going on any big run here. They're not uh, surprising anyone, fooling anyone in the uh, American League postseason. They, they've been a dreadful team to watch all year long I unless uh, something has changed since the last time they played the Yankees I don't think they've won a series against an American League East opponent yet this year they just every time they take one step forward seemingly they take another three four steps backwards and this to me was a very confusing day for them one team before I take a break, I do have to give credit to, though, the Philadelphia Phillies. They have been on 
fire since they fired uh, Joe Girardi. And they've put themselves in a spot where now that they're in the second wild card spot in the National League, and they made some moves to uh, to uh, improve uh, their roster. Uh, they added Dave Robertson to their bullpen. Hopefully, this time around, things go better than it did last time, where he barely ever pitched for them. He, I think, he tore his elbow the first month there and and missed pretty much the entire two-year contract. And they added Noah Syndergaard to uh, that rotation, who Noah Syndergaard had been kind of eh, average for the Angels over the last month or so. But we're, we're talking about a Phillies team who has played uh, most of the the last two months without Bryce Harper, ha- has played awful defense, but still somehow has kept themselves in the playoff race here. And at some point, we're going to have to start talking about Rob Thompson for NL Manager of the Year when you consider they were 22-29 and 29 under Joe Girardi um, to start the year. And then since he got fired early June, they've reeled off a 38-19 and 19 run here. So it's been some fun baseball for Philadelphia Phillies fans when two months ago it looked like it was going to be a long summer as they wait for Eagles training camp to begin. All right, going to take a, a break here, come back. Got to turn my attention to the captain. Parts five and six, watch that last night. Give some thoughts on that. Continue keeping it sports with M3. I'll be back. Connecticut School of Broadcasting founder Dick Robinson. You know, the media business has changed a lot since we opened our doors in 1964. Now media content is everywhere, on air, online, on the go. More than ever, companies are looking for people to help drive this new media. At Connecticut School of Broadcasting, you'll get hands-on training on the latest software and equipment in a matter of months, not years. Connecticut School of Broadcasting has placed thousands of grads in broadcast media careers. It's all about versatility. You see, at a radio station, if you also know how to shoot, edit, and post videos, you become a pretty hot commodity. That's the training you get at Connecticut School of Broadcasting. Connecticut School of Broadcasting with locations up and down the East Coast from Massachusetts to Miami. Call 1-800-TV-RADIO or log on to GoCSB.com. Connecticut School of Broadcasting, the nation's oldest and largest group of broadcast media schools. Redefining training in radio, TV, and new media. Get trained. Get connected. 1-800-TV-RADIO. Welcome back to Keeping Sports with M3 on this uh, Monday afternoon. Remember, as always, where you can find me on social media, facebook.com slash sports with M3, as well as on Twitter, at M3 Rosansky. You can find the uh, Twitter account for the podcast, at Keeping It Sports, as well as on Instagram. Uh, look up Keeping It Sports with M3 to find uh, the uh, 
live video as well as uh, the podcast links each and every single week for both Spotify and uh, the Podbeam app. Now, so I watched the captain uh, last night, uh, parts five and six of this uh, documentary. And now part five, of course, was a pain in the ass to have to deal with going down memory lane there a little bit. The probably the worst moment of my Yankee fandom being there a sophomore in high school and seeing the Yankees become that first team to blow a 3-0 lead in a seven-game postseason uh, series in not just uh, baseball history, but I believe at the time that was the first in all of North American sports history. I don't think it had happened in the NHL yet, and the Yankees being on the wrong side of history there and having to relive of Dave Roberts' stolen base in Game 4, uh, the game five was still the most befuddling one of them all because, it's, all right, the, the Red Sox avoid the sweep in game four. But then game five, you have Jeter giving them the, the lead with the three-run double in the sixth inning. And you're thinking, oh, it's over from here. The, the ghosts are continuing to haunt the Red Sox. But Ortiz gives them momentum with the home run in the eighth inning off Tom Gordon. Then you got the sack fly to tie things up. There, when Mo tried to come in for the five-out save. And just when you think, oh, maybe the ghosts still are there for the Yankees um, over the Red Sox. The unlucky break that people forget about there in the ninth inning. Because you had Ruben Sierra at first base. And Tony Clark hits this high, majestic ball to right field that... Uh, takes a bounce before the foul pole and bounces into the crowd. And even even as slowed down as Ruben Sierra was at that point, he was probably going to score on that play. There were two outs, and he was running on contact. He was coming around third as the uh, the ball uh, was bouncing into the crowd, and it if it bounced, maybe. Two inches lower, we're talking about a 5-4 lead, and Mo probably closes things out in the bottom of the ninth inning. But instead, things go back to um, Yankee Stadium for 6-7. and seven. You have the Yankees not bunting against Schilling when he was dealing with the whole bloody sock and the uh, however bad his uh, injury was to his uh, left foot. Uh, then you have A-Rod and the sw- trying to swat the ball out of Bronson Arroyo's glove uh, there. And from there, after they lost Game 6, I knew they were dead men walking in Game 7. And it was just, it was like a sports funeral there. And, you know, that team, you know, they talked about it there. They had a lot of star power on that team, but they lacked leadership. Remember, Andy Pettit left for Houston the previous offseason. So they didn't have that leader to go to in the starting rotation. And a lot of the guys on that team were older than Jeter and had a lot of success elsewhere. The guys that they had brought in, like A-Rod, like Gary Sheffield, uh, like John Olroot. So 
this wasn't a team that Jeter could exhibit leadership over. It, it, it was more of personalities and stars than it was leaders, and that came back to bite them. But you saw throughout the these two episodes, not just you know how Jeter was able to control his personal image always being in the public eye since the moment he was drafted. I mean, he, he was, it wasn't like he was a, an overachiever. This was a highly thought of prospect since the moment he came up from the minor leagues. But he uh, uh, had to deal with uh, you know, the media all the time uh, and trying to limit the distractions on the organization. The, there was the, the back and forth between... Uh, him and A-Rod, where anytime A-Rod struggled or got booed by fans, uh, they'd always run to Jeter and ask him about that, which, quite frankly, that shouldn't have been uh, uh, his job to try and get the fans off of A-Rod's back. It's just something you got to deal with when playing in New York. I, I love the fact that they finally addressed the, the uh, urban legend that's always been out there about the, you know, gift baskets for uh, women that Jeter had one-night stands with. That uh, was uh, funny, Jeter's reaction to that and the fact that they you know, finally put that myth to bed there of whether that actually happened or not. But uh, the, you start to get into uh, some serious things in the these uh the later stages of part five and in part six, one uh, with uh, Derek being biracial and having to to deal with you know the struggle it was at times to not want to answer any questions about race because as we've seen in uh, in this world we exist in uh, these days, you answer anything that has to do with race or social justice issues, you're considered by those who disagree with it, woke. And I've, and I've always said I can't stand that term. It, it's just a lazy thing by people that, oh, it doesn't fit in with the narrative they want out there. It doesn't negatively affect them in any way, so they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear uh, you know, people that are famous or people that are in the spotlight that they wish they only wish they had to make comments on social uh, justice issues or race issues. And you even saw a couple of times uh, in this where, uh, you know, some media members made some comments that they quite frankly shouldn't have, have made, whether it was, you know, Wallace Matthews comment about, Jeter being colorless, which I don't know how you could describe someone as being colorless, especially Derek Jeter, who's always been proud of the fact that he has a black father and a white mother and has never tried to shy uh, away from that, has you know tried to stand the line of being between both while representing both at the same time. But then... Buster Oley's comments in uh, part uh, six where he questioned whether uh, 
Jeter was a team player or not, or admits that back in 2014, he questioned whether Jeter was a, a team player or not. Because uh, remember, 2014 was Jeter's final year. And let's face it, the Yankees put his going away tour that year ahead of winning. He didn't have a he didn't have a great year offensively, but he wasn't an outright complete embarrassment. But let's face it. The numbers that he put up did not justify someone batting either leadoff or second in a lineup if you were actually trying to win something. And uh, the front office and the coaching staff let Jeter get away with it. You know, they, he, whenever Girardi would bring it up to him, uh, possibly moving down the lineup, he would always say, oh, give me two weeks, give me three weeks, I'll, I'll show you. And he would always put together... Uh, a stretch of play that was good enough to stay there. And then when he would slump again, they, they would uh, uh, address it, but it uh, was never a move they decided to go full bore with. But how you could ever question Derek Jeter being a team player. This is a guy that dove into the stands head first, not caring about injury. This is a guy that in 2012, remember late in the season, his last great year was playing through a, a bum ankle that he eventually broke uh, in the, the ALCS of uh, 2012 that took all the air out of uh, that Yankee team was the last time they were good until they started to reshape the roster and bring up some of the younger players like Aaron Judge in 2017. So I don't know how you could question whether Jeter was a team player or not. But throughout this, you had things you know, such as the beginnings of the demise of the relationship with Cashman and Jeter and how I remember how annoyed at the time I, I got after the 2010 season, when his free agent status got so public, got it seemed got so personal with with the Yankees and Jeter, when Jeter specifically asked for this not to be public, for this not to be made a uh, um, a big news story, and somehow, some way, it even though. Hank, Hank and Hal Steinbrenner agreed to that, somehow it became public through leaks in that organization. But you saw you know, how he pressed to get his 3,000th hit at home. You also saw the beginnings of his relationship with his now wife, Hannah Jeter. And that, that story was kind of funny. Uh, the fact that she's out to dinner with her mom and her best friend and her mom's going out of her way to point out with Jeter sitting at the table next to them after a striking conversation with Jeter to point out to him that Hannah was single at, at the time. And that was kind of what got the ball rolling for these two in uh, their relationship. So it was, uh, it was crazy. A crazy thing to watch, a, cra a crazy time to uh, relive. But this has been such a, a fun thing that, we, you know, he never let us in during his playing career. But it was great to see uh, 
so far the uh the personal side of Derek Jeter seeing him ex express no how he he felt there was some unloyalty toward him at times by the Yankees how you know annoyed he got at losing and we saw that but to truly hear it from the man's mouth and then to hear about some of the things going on in his his personal life it's been great to see that the captain finally opened that door that he coveted for so long that was he was so protective for so long of and let us in on to what is truly going on in his personal life now one positive thing here to close out on is hey this coming weekend, ladies and gentlemen, is the last weekend, the last Saturday and Sunday we will have until mid-February without football. Preseason games are going to get started on Thursday and Friday, but this Saturday and Sunday, the last time we're going to have a weekend without college or NFL football until the middle of February, which uh, you know, brings joy to my ears saying that. I mean, the... What does not bring joy to my ears is, uh, or to my mind, is the news I heard right before I began recording today's podcast, and that's that Makai Becton limped off of the practice field uh, at Jets' uh, training camp today, had to be helped off uh, due to an, an injury to his surgically repaired right knee. And this was coming at a time where, I was actually feeling good about Makai Becton. I was okay when I heard the news last week that they were moving him from left tackle to right tackle because, A, he's coming off an injury, so take a little pressure off of him being the blindside tackle. And, B, George Font, while he was awful the year before at right tackle, was great for the Jets last year when he had to take over at left tackle after Becton's injury. Give up. The one sack in the games that he started at left tackle for the remainder of the season. So that having uh, Becton at right tackle and Font at left tackle gave you your strongest possible offensive line with the uh, uh, addition of Lincoln Thompson uh, this offseason. I was feeling pretty good about this O-line. And now I'm shaking my head. I mean, I know you can't see and predict into the future, but maybe them bringing in Dwayne Brown and having discussions with him possibly joining this team wasn't such a, a luxury um, anymore. Maybe now it might become a necessity if something is truly wrong with Makai Becton. But hey, it goes back to him having too much weight on his body, too much uh um, force being put down on that knee if he's having a, a reoccurrence of an injury that you thought was completely healed up until this point. Now, the NFL has decided to appeal the Deshaun Watson uh, suspension, so it only remains to be seen what happens there and whether... Uh, no, he's going to serve the suspension at the start of this year, or we're going to have legal litigation like we had with Tom Brady and the Deflategate stuff. 
But here's what I got to ask uh, about this. If the NFL's up, appealing this, what was the point of having uh, Judge Sue Robinson uh, part of this to begin with? Because the appeal process now goes to either Roger Goodell or a designated appointee to now make the decision whether they stick with the suspension as was, increase it, or lessen it. And here's the thing. Sue Robinson agreed that uh, the Deshaun Watson uh, the, deserved to be punished, that he deserved to uh, have some sort of suspension, and that everything the NFL had asserted in their investigation was correct. The problem was she couldn't suspend him more than six games due to the fact that that was the previous standard that the NFL had set. So what was the point then of having her involved in this if you were just going to appeal it the whole time? I mean, this now is an ugly eye, not just on the show, but an ugly eye on the league. The fact that they had not been handling this or taking this with the seriousness that they should have been doing all along. I mean, especially when you take into a fact that you have a player uh, the, this year in Calvin Ridley who's being suspended the entire year due to gambling. And uh, another in DeAndre Hopkins who's being suspended the first six games due to PEDs. I don't think you can look at those and say, oh, those are clearly worse or just as bad as what Deshaun Watson um, did. I mean, Deshaun definitely deserves to be serving a much longer suspension than DeAndre Hopkins and probably as much as the suspension that Calvin Ridley is about to serve. And... Now, we saw uh, another suspension handed down uh, this week, that being Dolphins owner Stephen Ross, who, you know, clearly how dumb can you be with what he did? He's now suspended through October 17th, can't be involved in any uh, game day or league uh, uh, organized events uh, for owners after it was found that the Dolphins violated the, uh, the tampering rules on three separate occasions. One being in Tom Brady's final year uh, with the Patriots while he was still a Patriot trying to lure him to the Dolphins. Two being late last year when uh, Sean Payton was, before Sean Payton was announcing uh, he was uh, uh, for now retiring and stepping away uh, from uh, the New Orleans Saints. He tried to lure him to come into Miami to be the Dolphins head coach, and he can't do that because Sean Payton is still under contract with the Saints for at least the next two years. And during Tom Brady's fake retirement, he was offering Tom a, a piece of ownership that would allow Tom to eventually uh, come out of retirement and make himself the quarterback of uh, the Dolphins. And all of that has come to light and has completely now not just screwed Ross because he's out for the first uh, you know, month and a half of the season and it cost him $1.5 million, which is probably ashtray money for him. But it's cost 
the Miami Dolphins two draft picks, a third round draft pick in 2024, but their first round draft pick in 2023. And while, yes, they do have two first round draft picks next year, um, one being uh, the 49ers first round draft pick, the one they lost is their own. And in all likelihood, their own is probably going to be worse than the 49ers. Because we're going into a year where, you know, it's an important year for Tua Tagovailoa. We still don't know if he's the long-term answer as the Miami Dolphins quarterback or if he's going to be a bust and they got to draft another quarterback. And even if, say, they weren't completely god-awful, but they were bad enough to be the 10th pick in the draft, and let's say, for argument's sake, the 49ers pick was, say, the 16th or 17th pick in the first round of next year's draft, they could have still packaged those two together and moved up to get the quarterback that they uh, want in next year's draft because next year's draft is thought to be a better group of quarterback prospects than this year's one was. So Ross, in his moronic stupidity, has probably cost this team in bettering their future of this franchise. But, hey, I'm not going to have much, if any, sympathy for the Miami Dolphins. I mean, at least they have Dan Marino in their more recent history. I'm still waiting for someone to be step up and be that light of shining hope for the Jets that we haven't had since Broadway Joe walked out the door over 40 years ago. But it's coming, people. Football is on its way back. No, we have, what, four Sundays now until the NFL uh, season for 2022 begins. And quite frankly, I can't wait. And that, my friends, was Keeping It Sports with M3 from Monday, August 8th, 2022. I hope you all have a great uh, rest of your day. Have a great night. Please stay safe, stay healthy in whatever you're doing for the rest of of this week. And I'll be back here same time next Monday to talk to you all once again. Until then, peace. We have to go. Good night, everybody. I have had enough of you. Thank you for all the fun. Thank you. Hey, shut up, will ya? I don't want to see you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to smell you. Now leave. I'll be back.